0: Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, the chance for us to gather together to think about your church, what it is, how it's governed your headship over it and the officers that you appoint to care for it, both through acts of mercy and through the ministry of the word and prayer. Uh, the discipline of the church, and so forth. Lord, we thank you for our denomination, a historic and faithful denomination uh, of your church, uh, tracing its roots back hundreds of years even across the ocean. And so we thank you, God, that you have preserved her. We pray that this church and the men here would be a part of her continued faithfulness to doctrinal fidelity, to the truth of your word, and to worldwide witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us uh, clear thinking this morning, Lord. Help us to speak charitably, especially as we engage a little bit with sister denominations and other perspectives on church government that perhaps we don't agree with entirely. Uh, Lord, help us to remember that there is one holy and apostolic church uh, and that she is invisible uh, principally and you know who are your people. And so we thank you that we don't have to uh, be God in this situation. Rather, we can just be your servants. And so help us to serve faithfully now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So again, this morning, uh, we're talking about the governing standards, particularly of the ARP. I want to make two quick announcements uh, before we get into the chapters that uh, you were asked to look at this last week. Number one, uh, the next two Sundays, I'm saying this now, uh, but emails will go out. The next two Sundays are the last two Sundays of our officer training uh, Next week will be on Church Discipline, which will be Session 5A in Hall and Confession of Faith Chapter 30. And the following week will be Growing the Leadership of the Church, which is Session 6 in Hall, as well as Christ Covenant's position paper on the nomination and election of church officers, which I will email to you, a PDF, if I haven't already. Um, Neil is teaching both of those, which means they will be Sunday evening at 7 p.m. So there will be no more morning Uh, early morning if you're a 11 o'clock service guy you're welcome after this it'll be neil teaching the last two and we'll do those in the evening so just prepare your minds for that uh, thinking about what's coming today oh sorry second announcement so we're reaching the point now on the kind of the down slope uh, the off-ramp of this course uh, where we need to ask you to communicate with us about your perceived call to office in the church And so I I do, frankly, wish more men were here this morning, but uh, I'll communicate this via email probably tomorrow as well. If you are feeling called uh, to either the office of elder or deacon, I need you to reach out to me or Neil or Eric this week. This week, I would like to receive a text or an email or a phone call or one of us so we can begin communicating. We need that information uh, in order to begin thinking through next steps. Now, some of you may be feeling that, and there are some of you here and some who aren't here this morning who right now aren't qualified by our governing standards to serve in office because of membership and time here at the church. I would still ask you to communicate that with me so that way we can be thinking and praying about you over the coming year or two as those doors open up um, structurally for you to perhaps pursue office in the church. Uh, But I'll communicate that to you immediately if that's the case. Listen, you've not been a member long enough or or whatever the case may be, and and that'll just kind of immediately close the door. But we're asking for those men who feel like uh, this might be the time, uh, we would like to begin thinking through next steps with you and talking about what's forthcoming. And Neil's going to talk about that at length in the last week. What does it mean to grow uh, the leadership of the church? How do we bring people on to the session and the diaconate? So uh, any questions on that? Yes, Jacob. I thought it
1: would be I thought it would be kind of vice versa you would because of Theo's first um uh because the first session when he talked about um fit.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a difference between being qualified and being called. Right. And so the first the very first thing that Paul says to Timothy is if a man desires, he desires a good thing. And so that's where it starts uh, is with the, the sense of uh, call into the office of the, an office in the church. And so we want to leave it there. Encourage because. Let's say, let's say, Jake, for example, you felt like, man, I really feel like it, and I hope I get the phone call. Now you're like waiting for a job interview callback rather than simply saying, and we may not discern that that's where you are right now, but want to go through the next steps where we sit down and talk with you as a session, where we administer an examination, a theological examination, and so forth, in order to tease out the rest that might not be a full picture in our view right now, because uh, part of what this... Where we're limited here is that there's, there's only so much interaction. And, of course, we know you guys. We know you men and some better than others. Uh, but we want to ask first, do you feel like the Spirit has put something on your heart? We've been asking you guys to pray uh, that says, I really feel like I, I want to serve as a deacon here or serve as an elder on the session. And so that's where we want to begin. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, no, that,
1: wasn't, that wasn't a point of contention. It was
0: just to clear up some confusion in my mind. Sure. Excellent. All right. So for you guys that just walked in, I've asked that if you feel like the Lord has put it on your heart to possibly put your name forward to serve as an elder or deacon in this upcoming election cycle, such as it were, please communicate with me or Neil or Eric this week. Uh, so that way we can begin talking about the next steps. All right. Let's look at our governing standards. Uh, we I'm going to look through chapter 31. If you have a confession with you, uh, open it to chapter 31. Uh, And we're just going to talk through it very briefly. Uh, We'll end up getting into the meat and potatoes as we go through Hall's book, especially, and then our particular governing standards. We're going to be talking about the ARP's uh, governing standards, in particular, at the end of our time today. Uh, But I want to start with the confession and just simply read through and make a couple of highlights. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Now, I don't mean to treat you like children who, don't, who can't understand what that means, but I think this is frankly really important, that it starts off with saying that it's for our good and edification that we do these things. The fact that we have church government is a good thing. Um, you know, there's this common refrain in our day and age, uh, I, I love God, I love the Bible, it's not like organized religion and like organized religion, which is really striking to me since God put a lot of time into organizing his people together. Uh, He established officers. He talked about meeting. He regulated worship. Everything God has done has been taking chaos and turning it into order, right? Uh, All the way from non-creation into creation to... Uh, uh, depraved men into redeemed men. And so God's in the business of ordering things. Everything that we do, the Presbyterians, life first, obviously, 1 Corinthians 14, everything that you do should be done decently in a good order. And so we believe that that's for the edification of the church and for the betterment of her. And so this is not some, you know, don't, don't tie this too closely to what you witness out there in the world of politics and government and so forth and the frustration you have. And perhaps you've had frustration in the church as well. Uh, Hall makes a brilliant statement um, in his uh, chapter here. I don't remember the page it's on. Um, Oh, on page 148 about man's depravity and how church government is needed, is necessary because of the depravity of man. Uh, And so I hope you read that. I won't belabor it, but here we go. As uh, magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, So, that doesn't happen anymore, obviously, Uh, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves by virtue of their office or they with other fit persons upon delegation from their churches may meet together in such assemblies. In other words, it's necessary even if the government doesn't encourage us to or doesn't even want us to, it's incumbent upon us upon churches, in particular officers of the church, to meet together to uh, talk about doctrine and government and so forth of the church. Uh, Neil will lean into the church discipline question next week. Uh, Number three, it belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith uh, and cases of conscience. In other words, uh, do we need to make amendments or changes to our forms of government uh, and so forth? Um, Although we'll get to this when we talk about our governing standards, the fact that uh, principally above all of our other governing standards, the form of government, the book of discipline, directory of public and private worship and so forth, is the Westminster standards, the confession of faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. And those are centuries old and lasting for a reason. And so there's some sort of hubris that must uh, exist in a man to say, you know, I get it, but I've got something better. Um, so we want to think in, in those terms as well when it comes down to um, controversies of faith, they ought to become fewer and farther between as time marches on. Uh, To set down rules and direction for the better ordering of the public worship of God, for example, uh, the directory, now I want to find the the technical term here, uh, the directory of private and family worship was just recently put out by the ARP in 2021 and uh, accepted at synod and then put forward to the presbyteries. And so as we think about the better ordering of worship, our denomination has said, look, how can we encourage our people, our congregations, to be worshiping well in their homes? And so that was one of the steps that they took. That's exactly what the confession is talking about. To receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same. Which decrees and determinations, if consonant with the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission? And so we're going to come back to this idea of authority and derived authority as we go through our time this morning. But what the confession is saying here is synods, councils, sessions even are not infallible and can't just make up rules or come up with decisions that are contrary to God's word and demand that they be submitted to by all the members of, of said churches. And so, as, so far as these things are constant with the word of God, however, and because the office is a God-ordained office the things that come out of synod and out of a presbytery and out of a session ought to be submitted to with reverence uh, and received with, uh, with reverence and submission, it says. Not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made. That's that derived authority I just mentioned. As being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. <clears throat> All that to say, there's, the line between authority and authoritarianism is fairly thin. And perhaps many or most of us have experienced the wrong side of that line in other churches or in other denominations. We want to be sure prayerfully and, uh, and through a thorough looking at scripture that our church, our presbytery and our denomination is on the correct side of that line. That it's coming up with and putting forth recommendations and policies and papers and so forth that are constant with God's word and are not binding the consciences of men or in otherwise uh, uh, misrepresenting, maladministering its own authority is the way the confession uses it. Uh, number four, all synods or councils since the apostles' time, whether general or particular, may err. And you can read there in parentheses, and many have erred. In parentheses there, you can just put the Roman Catholic Church. Like, that's kind of where that's coming from. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm being cute, I suppose, but that's, that's really, just remember where they're coming from. Uh, The Westminster Assembly is born out of the Reformation. We're 125 years after Luther's uh, 95 theses, and so you remember from Luther forward and Calvin and others were really going back to the sources, back to the apostolic fathers, back to the patristics to see where the Roman Catholic Church had deviated from them. They were trying to return to original councils, trying to return to old synods and old creeds and so forth, and recapture the true uh, portrayal of the gospel in church history. And show where others had erred and gone the wrong way, and so that's that's what's leading up to a statement like this. But we would say the same thing even today. In the 400 years, uh, nearly 400 years since the Westminster Divines met, we would say also that there have been errors. Books have been written that have later turned out to be uh, uh, in error, or thoughts have been put forth, or decisions have been made. And so again, we need to be prayerful. It's why the first duty of the officers is to administer, is prayer and the ministry of the word, right? Remember Acts chapter 6? And so we want to be prayerful and thoughtful about um, our reception of these things. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. The word of God alone is our only authority in faith and in practice, right? Uh, But all of these other things, councils, synods, Westminster standards, they're a help to us. So don't let anybody tell you that we worship the Westminster Standards. Because you'll hear that. You'll hear as especially if, if you serve as an officer in the church, people who will come here for worship or people who you will engage with out in the world will think that way wrongly. I suppose on the other side I should say, don't worship the Westminster Standards, right? Number five, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Okay, Um, that's that's the Westminster, you've heard this before, Um, uh, this is the Westminster Divine's way of saying, mind your own business. Be involved with what you should be involved in. The leadership of the church, the government of the church is concerned with church matters. Those things that are ecclesiastical, okay? Yes. Are you talk are you talking about the point number
2: one mine does not either. Yeah, the section about May confer with Furth. But you got the 5
0: on at 4. You're at 4. Yeah. So your starts for the better government and then number 2 you don't have as magistrates may lawfully call sin. I got that Zach? I got the historic text the RCF 1788 text and the modern version right Yeah. Okay, so this is uh, so you've got a modern uh, combined. They combined one and two. So is your is your paragraph one, Eric, really big? It is, but it
2: doesn't have anything about
0: you know, cooperating with the Hmm. No consulting and advising. So yeah. Well, I can't answer that uh, right now. That's a good question, though. Um, so there's also uh, the Scottish Church made some modifications and revisions, and so I wonder if that has something to do with the the. Uh, issue between mine and yours. We're going to go with this one because it's leather bound. We're going to, I don't know if that matters. Um, That's a, yours is the same as mine. And what does yours say on the front? 1646. So this is the original with scripture proof. So this is the original one that was put out. And so yours, Eric, is probably a modern or a Scottish church. Okay, and that's the Van Dixorn book, so his commentary on that is going to be really helpful uh, with the, the later revision. So, good question. Nope, not at all. Okay, so th- that's, our, that's our first uh, point of order in uh, talking about our governing, governing documents. is going to be the Westminster Confession of Faith as it speaks to councils and synods in Chapter 31, uh, whichever edition you may have. We want to look now a little bit more closely at uh, what Hall says in chapter f- or session five of his book. We're not going to get through this entire chapter. It's quite lengthy. I do hope that you read it. Uh, there are a number of things in his, uh, starting on page 141 for further study, uh, that's really worth your time diving into. But I want to talk about a few things in the introductory paragraphs of this chapter. And then we're going to turn our attention together to page 136 and look at the principles of Presbyterian government from Thomas Withero. Um, I would also level the challenge to you all to think about writing a book or an essay that in- includes the phrase, which is it, uh, in its title. That's a fantastic way to end an um, a, a, a uh, essay title. This book, by the way, which Withero uh, writes that Hall is dealing with here, can be found independently. You can get... This book is a standalone publication. It's uh, it's a hardback. It's very thin, um, but you can also get it in this new book, beautifully bound and covered by Westminster Seminary Press uh, last year, I think. And it is a compilation of writings on church polity, baptism, and the Sabbath by Thomas Witherow, and it's included in this book uh, as well. It's called "I Will Build My Church." If you've not if you're not seeing it in person. So Hall begins by talking about governmental structure that is unique within the church. It's unique and separate from civil forms of governing. This, however, uh, was not unanimously agreed upon by the Westminster Divine. He refers to it as the grand debate. It uh, was lengthy and thorough and occurred uh, throughout the, uh, the time that the Divines met. Uh, Two centuries after the convening of the assembly, Thomas Smith of South Carolina summed up the importance of the subject of government by saying the subject of church government became an all engrossing topic of the day and from its close connection with public affairs, a national question. Within a period of 20 years, speaking of 20 years from the uh, conclusion of the assembly, no fewer than 30,000 pamphlets were issued on the subject. And so let's go back to what the confession itself says. Councils and synods have erred. Uh, and so we just need to recognize that there was not unanimity. There were also Congregationalists, as well as Presbyterians uh, among the Westminster Divines. There were also Episcopalians among the Westminster Divines. But it is clear, by the way, that the uh, confession of faith is worded, um, <clears throat> especially the Directory for Church Government, um, that Presbyterianism was the majority opinion of the assembly, okay? Uh, So Presbyterianism is the majority uh, opinion of the assembly, and it is our particular uh, flavor of ecclesiology. So there is, uh, in his second paragraph here on page 131, he says there are two explanations for the fact that the... um, The chapter on church government is fairly slim relative to some of the other ones. The first is that the committees formulating the confession could not agree on all aspects of church government, although the skeletal structure of Presbyterianism is is present. So in other words, they recognized that there were some things that not everyone agreed on, and they weren't going to necessarily take too hard or too thick of a line and create unnecessary division. And secondly, the confession here, as well as elsewhere, also exhibits the commitment of the divines not to exceed the bounds of scriptural revelation on a particular topic. Now, when we get to Thomas Witherow and the Apostolic Church, which is it? We're going to see that what the Bible lays out for church government is what Presbyterianism provides. Uh, Samuel Miller, uh, in he deals with Presbyterianism in some of well, in all of his writing, really, and he makes the statement that while I don't believe that Presbyterianism is perfect, I believe it's the zenith of ecclesiology, this side of heaven. And so that's sort of the approach that we take when thinking about the differences between what we believe as Presbyterians, our form of government, and perhaps our Baptist brethren, and so on and so forth. We don't, uh, I don't believe that... Uh, I think there's something missing in other forms of church government, in other words. Not that Presbyterianism is necessarily perfect, or our expression of it, but it is the zenith of what the scriptures encourage us to do uh, as believers gathered together in the church. Uh, he goes on to talk about chapter 30 a little bit. I'm going to leave that for Neal for next week. <clears throat> uh, as well as the next paragraph talking about church discipline. Um, down at the bottom of page 133, he talks about a part of church government was the relationship of different levels of governing bodies. According to the confession, to expedite government and more appropriately to build up the church, God has ordained assemblies, which are called councils and synods. So you know that in our, in our denomination, we have at the lowest level, the ruling body of a local church is called the session, right? And then uh, local churches, which are uh, in proximity to one another geographically, is called a presbytery. Our presbytery is called? Grace Grace Presbytery. It used to be part of First Presbytery, which is all of North Carolina, and now we're basically Winston-Salem to the coast. I think right now there are 17, is that right, Eric? Do you know? 17 churches in Grace Presbytery. So there is some distance. Winston's 35 minutes that way, and Jacksonville is three and a half hours that way. So I, when I say geographic proximity, that's uh, you know, understood relative to where you live. Um, you know, If you're in Columbia, South Carolina, there's probably 17, or Charlotte, there's a number of them. But um, so our presbytery, Grace Presbytery, that's the second level. And then at the top, we have an annual gathering of the presbyters uh, or the ministers and elders of our denomination, and we call that in our denomination synod. General Synod. We had it at Bon clarken back in June. It'll be at Bond clarken again next year in June, and in fact, they got us. It'll be at Bond clarken again the next year in June. Um, the PCA calls it a General Assembly, and they had theirs in Birmingham this year, so you may be familiar with these terms. These are the levels of uh, governing bodies and assemblies and councils and so forth that meet uh, within a Presbyterian polity. Anybody come out of a Dutch tradition? Okay, they, they have similar setup, Dutch Reformed Churches, CRC, for example, RC, uh, RCA, they have similar, but they have a Classis and, uh, and a Synod, and then they have another one, their national level, something different altogether. Jake? Yeah, so we have we have fellowship with uh, several, many other denominations, and part of our synod. Anybody here ever been descended besides me, Eric? Have you been descended at the national level, or a GA in another denomination, or an OPC or something? Okay, so there's throughout the course of that week. There's always a re- there are reports given from other denominations. Uh, this last year at Synod, the PCA uh, Brian Chapel came and spoke on their behalf because he's the stated clerk or the secretary. I forget what they call it. Uh, for him, somebody from the OPC came. Uh, we had somebody from the URC, the United Reformed Church, is a Dutch tradition reform denomination. Basically, anybody that's part of the NAPARC group uh, is we have fellowship with, and they'll often send a delegate. Part of our um, Business at Synod this last year was to elect men from our denomination to go as representatives to those events that other people have. So somebody from the ARP spoke and greeted the brothers at the PCA General Assembly and did so up in um, wherever they had uh, OPC this last year, Ohio or something like that uh, as well. Yeah, so that's the sort of relationship that we have um, with the sister denominations. Yeah, good question, though. Um, <clears throat> So let's get to this Witherow um, section oh, on page 136. Uh, six principles of the apostolic church. What we're really doing here is we're, we're asking the question, does our uh, ecclesiology, our approach to church polity and government, uh, align with what the scriptures put forth uh, concerning the church. Thomas Withero, uh, interested in, in writing this uh, book for the reason uh, just given, uh, he wanted to ask the question, what sort of church is most biblical? What kind of church polity is most biblical? And so he, he gives us six principles uh, that are listed here on page 136 for a, an apostolic church, a biblical church. And then what he encourages you to do is to ask yourself the question, does this fit the polity uh, of a Presbyterian church? So let's look at these together. Number one, the office bearers are chosen by the people. So the office bearers in a Presbyterian uh, form of government are chosen by the people. And this is certainly biblical. Look at Acts chapter, uh, well, he he lists here, and you don't have this in front of you, but he lists here several passages from Acts, Acts chapter 1, chapter 14 and chapter 6 we'll look at chapter 6 uh, verses 5 and 6 in particular therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering right the apostles are saying to the men there choose from among yourselves and we will devote ourselves to prayer And they uh, chose, and they list these seven men. Now, what happens after they choose them is that the apostles are the ones that designate them to do the work. And so there's a relationship dynamic there between the congregation choosing men from among themselves and the leadership of the church affirming that choice, right? Uh, Our form of government, which we'll get to uh, sometime today, will talk about the relationship between the congregation's choice of people and election of them and the session's responsibility to examine them and evaluate them as being qualified. Uh, So, for example, the church here in Acts chapter 6 didn't just simply say, Philip, and all the apostles were like, oh, good grief, Philip. You know, nobody, this guy's just the worst. And I'm not not even sure he's a Christian, but I guess if you guys want him, you got him. Right? There There was an appropriate... Uh, evaluation of Philip as well. Was he really full of the spirit uh, and wisdom? In fact, in Acts chapter 14, it talks about them being appointed. And we have this idea of of the hands being laid on, of men to office and the responsibility being uh, put upon them by the leadership of the church. They were committed to the Lord, uh, these people who were serving in office. And that is how we do things. That's how the Presbyterian Church works. Number two, uh, or letter B in your book, the office of bishop and elder, is identical. Uh, You can see the references here in your book in Acts chapter 20, Titus 1, 1 Timothy and 1 Peter. Uh, We see elsewhere in Paul's letters as he interchanges the words for overseers or bishop or elders, episcopi and presbyteros and so forth. Uh, The idea here is... Simply to say that rather than being hierarchical, having uh, a bishop who's over the church or a region of the church or a pope, for example, these leadership terms are interchangeable in Scripture. I think probably one of the best passages to look at is Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on the beach uh, getting ready to... uh, Uh, head back to Jerusalem he's speaking to the um, Ephesian elders he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church he calls the elders of the church um, and he tells them how he lived when he was among them and then later he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock verse 28 in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers And so he's speaking to elders and calling them overseers. And he's interchanging these terms because they're identical in purpose. They're pastoral in role. Uh, The the purpose of these particular uh, terms is to designate the fact that the men given to lead the church are to be shepherds, carers, overseers, and so forth. Uh, Letter C, there on page 136. The apostolic church, the, what the Bible portrays for us as a biblical uh, model of church is there's to be a plurality of elders in each church. So he gives the references of Acts 14, Acts 20 again, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, you could look at uh, Titus was encouraged to appoint elders in every city, on uh, Crete, for example. <clears throat> and so we see that, he, uh, that the scriptures put forward an idea of a plurality of, of leadership in the church. There's a couple reasons for that, and I, I think that these were probably dealt with uh, in, uh, in great detail when Eric taught on elders in the session. Was that last week that it was elders in the session, I think? Two weeks ago. Um, and so I won't belabor this, but just going back to our earlier point about the depravity of man, right, uh, having one person with uh, absolute power and authority in the church is just a, 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 a petri dish for corruption to grow, right? <clears throat> we, uh, I, I think about it this way we have on our session some of the most brilliant men that you'll ever meet um, I said some of the most and now it makes it sound like there's a couple on there that just aren't that you know what I mean I should say our session is frankly brilliant and exceptionally godly I love the men that I serve with on the session and so let's t- pick Eric, for example. If Eric has been on vacation and while he was away he read a book and he's been thinking about things going on in the church and he has this idea that is in his mind it's ruminating and growing and he comes to the session with this idea about uh, um, some policy or some decision that we could make for the future, it may be brilliant and well thought out and, and thorough and, and great. Let's call it a great idea. But it's not a complete idea until the whole session gets a hold of it and chews on it and comes out together with the end product, right? We're a, a big pie, and each person is a different slice on that pie, now, don't use this analogy for God, right? God is divine and simple, uh, but we're not. Uh, some of us are more simple than others, but we're a big pie. And so we've got some men who are very organized and, and detail-oriented and policy-driven and others who are creative and outside-the-box thinking and others who are supportive and able to offer, like, small suggestions that really refine and hone the big picture and others who are kind of not contrarian but are... are, are um, analytical, and we'll be able to look at something that's being put forward and say, you know, somebody might ask this question. Are we sure that that's, we, need, we have the answer for it? And at the end of that process, we have a complete idea. <clears throat> and so the plurality of elders helps to serve the church, not only to protect her from one man's ideas and authoritarianism, but to help bring together uh, the collected wisdom of the spirit-appointed leadership of the church for her good. Letter D, ordination is an act of a presbytery, that is, of a plurality of elders. And so we see in Acts chapter 6, therefore, they set before the apostles these seven men, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Acts uh, chapter 13, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, menaean a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they, plurality, laid their hands on them and sent them off. Um, Timothy is told, reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, do not neglect the gift that you have which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. And so we have this idea that ordination is done. Uh, as an act of presbytery or a plurality of elders. Now, um, in our church governing structure, uh, who ordains ministers? Anybody know? Who ordains the ministers? So when I was ordained here, when Neil was ordained back in the PCA and then transferred into the ARP, who does that job? Does anybody know? Presbytery. presbytery, that's right. So that, that person, so let's say that uh, Chris is finished with a seminary degree and is being examined for ordination, he will stand in front of, there's a committee that the presbytery has, the minister and his works committee that will examine him, do written and oral exams. And then he will go before the whole, the gathered presbytery, the representatives of our 17 churches. Those are all of the ordained ministers plus representative elders, depending on the church size. So we, we rate two ministers because we have two ordained uh, ministers here plus two elders because we have a certain size membership, right? A smaller church would be maybe one-in-one or two-in-one or so forth. And so he would then stand in front of all of them. The minister in his works committee puts him forward as a seconded recommendation for ordination. And essentially what happens then, you know, when, so like if Jason makes a motion and then Drew seconds it, we say, okay, any discussion, That's what the examination on the floor is. It's the any discussion. And then all the men of presbytery can ask him whatever questions they want about life and doctrine and theology and so forth. And at the end, they kick him out, and then they vote to ordain. So the presbytery ordains, and that's what it's talking about here, the plurality of elders do the examination for ordination. Then at his ordination service, representatives of the presbytery, as Dave said, would come here, and those men, as well as the elders of this church, would lay their hands on him for the ordination into gospel ministry. Uh, And so that's our practice, both in our denomination and in Presbyterianism, as well as what we see in Scripture. Uh, Letter E there, number five, there is the privilege of appeal to the assembly of elders, and the power of government is exercised by them jointly. Um, So this is missing from many other forms of polity. Um, For example, a lot of, Now, when I say Baptist, perhaps you think uh, Southern Baptist Convention. But again, just bear in mind the Southern Baptist Convention uh, still functions differently than we do at the convention level. Um, And a lot of what we see, I don't know if you've ever driven back roads here in North Carolina. Anybody ever drive a back road between here and Georgia? Almost every church sign you drive by is free will something or other Baptist something or other church or local independent something or other something or other church I've got a good friend who recently moved to Florida and they went to a church their first week there and he sent me a text he said can you look this church up for me I just want to get I I, I want to get a feel for it and so I looked up their doctrinal statement for this church um in like size six font was only that big uh, it was next to nothing, and then when I looked it up, I realized they had changed their name over the course of history from like Independent Free Will Fundamentalist Baptist, something or other, to Grace Bible Church. <laughs> so they, they they were trying to hide it, you know, behind the behind the nomenclature. But uh, we have the policies and procedures in place for appeal. Um, <clears throat> the appeal to the assembly of elders uh, and the power of government was exercised them. Uh, exercised by them in their joint assembly we see this especially in Acts chapter 15 there was a small dissension uh, and debate in Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to ask the apostles and elders about this question and so then they came to Jerusalem this Jerusalem council that you're familiar with they considered the arguments and the things that Paul and Barnabas had said they declared all that God had done and it seemed good to them to choose from among them and send them to Antioch and, uh, and so forth. And they made their decisions about what these new Gentile churches should be doing uh, doctrinally and thinking about functionally. Yes. So the, just
1: as a point of contrast to the, the recent law. Yes. With, had they had presbyteries where there could have been appeal dealing with case, case by case basis. Yes. And not let it proliferate like it
0: did. So I, they,
1: that, that's an illustration of how their form of government
2: did them
0: wrong. I totally agree. I think that's a great illustration. Now, I will say this for us, and here, here's the danger, okay? Um, it's, we can believe that our form of government inherently protects us from that. That the existence of this form of government protects us from that, but it's actually the proper practice of this form of government that protects us from those things. And so the danger in a presbytery like ours, and I'm not speaking ill of Grace Presbytery, but the danger is that there's 230 miles or more between Eric Hancock's and Eric Tracy in Jacksonville uh, and in Winston-Salem. And so the chances of those men getting together more than a couple times a year for four hours and then trying to hit the road because they got a long drive to get back home before they preach the next day is pretty limited. So aside from everybody being faithful to attend synod and trying to eat meals together, and aside from people trying to get together for uh, uh, presbytery pastors' lunches and stuff, for example, this Tuesday out in Burlington we're having a luncheon Uh, for ministers and elders in our presbytery to attend. I'm actually giving a presentation on a book by David Murray. And so we try to do those things from time to time, but it's incumbent upon us to develop good relationships among sister churches in order to be able to ask good questions, hear about the health of those churches, ask for prayer for our own, and so forth. Uh, But you're absolutely right. What happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, at least in part, It wasn't a result of not having presbyteries, but having had presbyteries would have potentially impacted that positively. Yeah, great point. Uh, And then letter F there, the only head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss the fact, I I don't want you to miss that line when we come to our form of government, which we're coming to now. Uh, The very first chapter of our form of government makes the statement Um. Christ is the king of the church. He is the only head of the church. And so when you ask yourself, uh, you read this uh, information by Thomas Witherell, and he asked the question, the apostolic church, which is it? We might conclude by asking, Presbyterianism, why do we? And the reason we do is because we believe that it is the biblical expression of church government and polity. We believe that the way that we organize ourselves denominationally, the way that we organize ourselves locally, the way that we elect men into the offices of the church, the way that we provide discipline and structure to the church, uh, and the way that we minister uh, to the church are all um, fitted with the biblical um, uh, expression that we just went through in Witherow's book. So I encourage you to read that. Continue reading uh, that chapter in uh, Hall. I want to close that up now and talk about our governing standards. Bear in mind, Hall is writing from a PCA perspective, and so you're going to see Book of Church Order and so forth. Uh, For example, ours is slightly different. We have a a form of government, the fog, as it's affectionately known. Now, stand by for this, by the way. Um, You know, so... You know, if you're if you're part of a committee or a session or, or something like that, and you're the last guy to show up, they always give you the the tough tasks. You know what I mean? Like, you guys ever been on a board meeting where you vote for the guy that's not in attendance to do that thing? Like, we need someone to clean the latrines. Let's have Jason do it. Jason's not here, right? Okay, so that's what happened to me. Um, so new newest minister in our presbytery, and so the moderator formed a committee to create a teaching program for our churches, uh, our denominations governing standards. And so I'm the uh, the chairman of that committee, and right now we're in the process of putting together a series of videos that are going to teach through our form of government, and they will be disseminated to sessions and churches in our presbytery in order to train our elders in how to understand and utilize the form of government the way it's designed. So that's forthcoming. So if you're looking at the fog and going, I have no idea what any of this means, we're getting to it. (laughs) so our governing standards there are six in total um our uh, our form of government lists six in chapter two uh section 13 the form of government consists of the westminster confession of faith the larger catechism the shorter catechism the form of government the fog the rule of discipline and the directory of public worship um I would also include here, uh, if we lump the Westminster Standards together, uh, we also have something called a Manual of Authorities and Duties, which I'll talk about very, very briefly. Uh, we have the Book of Discipline, as I mentioned, the Directory of Public Worship, and then recently published, the Directory of Public, uh, Private and Family Worship, which is very short, and we won't spend much time there. So our governing documents are historic The Westminster Standards are nearly 400 years old, and this is a big issue in our day. Uh, The fact that we use the Westminster Standards as our, uh, under Scripture, obviously, but as our chief governing document, is because we're declaring, by doing so, that we are a part of a historical tradition of churches, and we're under authority, we recognize that we are under authority. Uh, that authority is God-ordained. Uh, we look at what the Confession says about the calling together of councils and so forth in order to declare those things that are true and beneficial to the church, which is exactly what the Westminster Assembly was. Uh, we, if you're familiar with the idea of taking exceptions, To ordination vows. Anybody heard that phrase before, taking an exception? You're all nodding your head, so you're probably thinking of something or another. Uh, There's a couple big ones. Um, Right now, it seems to me, I'd be interested in in, in Eric's thought on this as well. It seems to me that uh, some of the big ones are uh, Sabbath. Um, the recreation issue on the Sabbath, like what does it mean uh, to keep the Sabbath and so forth? And so you'll see a lot of uh, men stand before a Presbytery to be examined, and the first question they're asked is, do you take any exceptions to the Westminster standards? And they'll say, yes, I think I should be allowed to, you know, watch a movie on Sunday or go for a walk with my wife on the Lord's Day or, you know, play basketball with my kids. So I take an exception to that, um, which is not what the Confession is arguing against anyway. uh, But that's the first one. What do you think Another some other big exceptions might be?
1: Well, I have, like, one of my big exceptions
0: is that Will Wolf is wearing Christmas socks. Yeah, 100%. That's disciplinable, actually. Fall. Yeah, barely. It's not even fall yet. We had fall. one day where it didn't get up to 80, and he's got Christmas socks on.
2: Christmas socks. I don't that's know right. if that's a legitimate exception.
0: Yes. Yeah, no, he's allowed to take that exception. Actually, the yeah, the the in the original in the original autographs, as we call them, there's a chapter on on footwear. Uh,
1: that's right. So Christmas socks. Listen,
0: listen, listen. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna offend some people. Christmas socks. Christmas socks are in. Christmas socks are in. Socks and sandals are out. Sorry, sorry, guys. Westminster standards. Uh, well, so the issue. The the issue of a literal six-day creation is another major exception that we'll hear about these days. Uh, One of the other issues that seems to be presenting itself will be the the side B, gay Christianity thing that's going on, uh, especially in the PCA, uh, saying, I I think it's okay to ordain someone uh, of that disposition into gospel ministry. Uh, But the reason that we have historical confessional standards uh, that rule our practice of uh, church government is because we want to make sure that we are together, as leaders of the church, uh, aligned in our belief system, Uh, not only what we believe, but what we practice. And so I said this several weeks ago in talking about baptism. It's to become a member here at Christ Covenant Church. You do not need to agree with all of the governing documents of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. You do have to affirm that those things that we believe are scriptural and basis but you think that perhaps you can come to a different answer on a couple of points. If there were major issues, I would encourage you to think about whether or not it's a right fit. But to serve as an officer in the church, you have to uh, agree to the confessional standards and the governing documents of our denomination. Uh, So we have the Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, which is largely, no pun intended, overlooked in our day. Please take time to read that on your own. It is a a brilliant exposition of... um, of our doctrine as well as the shorter catechism we have something called the manual of authorities and duties which is a 118 page document uh no siri that's not good grief Uh, it is a, a 118 page document that details and outlines the responsibilities of the offices held within the arp Uh, For example, the method and criteria for selecting members of synod, like a moderator and a vice moderator, are outlined in the Manual of Authorities and Duties. Then we have our form of government, which is that black book you've seen Neil open it up when we're baptizing a a covenant child or, or administering membership vows. Our form of government is 117 pages, Uh, And it outlines the structure of our polity. And so I want to walk through that with you uh, and talk through those chapters. You can find, by the way, uh, the form of government on the ARP's website. So if you simply go to the ARP Church's website, you can find a PDF of all these documents that I'm talking about. Chapter 1 in the form of government is about the church. And it tells us in... uh, Chapter 1.2, that Christ is the only head and king of the church. Again, remember what we said about derived authority. Christ himself is the head of the church. Uh, he has put men in place to serve her through various uh, ruling uh, positions, such as uh, elder and deacon and minister. and But he alone is the authority in the church. Uh, chapter 2 is the government of the church. Uh, chapter 2 details the history of Presbyterianism from Calvin back in 1542 in Geneva to its beginnings in Scotland in the 1560s with John Knox, and it also gives a short form of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church's history from the seceders uh, uh, and the associates all the way to Philadelphia and the formation of our denomination. If you have questions on that, I'd encourage you to ask Glenn Smith. I think he's read all five volumes of the history of the ARP. Um, (laughs) And they're really helpful, frankly, just to just to get an idea of what's going on. Do we want to do a quick set of jumping jacks? Is everybody doing okay? I feel like uh, I feel like I'm losing y'all. They give me these ones, governing documents. You know what I mean? Uh, so chapter two is really important uh, because it talks about the government of the church and the purpose of the church and her officers. So for you men who aspire to the office of overseer, or of deacon in the church, it's important to know what our form of government, both in chapter two, as well as the manual of authorities and duties, says about the roles of elders and deacons within the church all the way up to the denominational level. Chapter three, however, is the chapter that you'll probably spend the most time thinking about, as someone who's leading in the church. Chapter 3 deals with the congregation. It talks about joining the church. So our membership vows uh, uh, come in chapter 4, but it talks about joining uh, a church, two churches together. It talks about forming new churches, dissolving churches, meetings at churches. So, for example, why do we have congregational meetings and when do we have them? Budgetary meetings and so forth. Special meetings that may be called by the session for other business, as it's called. um, Those sorts of questions are found here. So, for example, if Jason had a question about why do we have our budget meeting once a year and what goes into that process, those answers are found in chapter three. Chapter four, uh, which I should have said will be the chapter you'll spend a lot of time in as well, is about the church member. It deals with membership in the church. For example, um, in chapter one, as it defines what the church is. It talks about being a body of believers and their children. Don't forget, we're Presbyterians. And so when we talk about the body of church and their children, chapter 4 asks, well, what are the children's roles and responsibilities? We have the communicant membership uh, of the church. So if we were going to bring a child of the church into um, communicant status, how would that process be done? Um, Or as well as welcoming new members to the church. So um, I don't know who was a, who's a recent member. Jason, you've been a member here for like six or eight months or something like that, right? In December. So when Jason became a member, what was that process? He stood up on the dais with the elders standing behind him to his right and Neil standing in front of him looking at him like I'm looking at Ben. And Ben was probably over here taking pictures. And he was asked seven membership vows, right? You remember those? Those are all found in Chapter 4 of our uh, form of government. They're particular. They're written down for a reason. And they articulate what the expectations are for the church and for the new member. Uh, it also talks about transfers. Uh, if you were going to transfer into our church from another church or if you were going to leave here and go, you know, let's say one of your grown children was going to go off to college in Columbia, uh, which I don't know why anybody would say they're going to go to college in, in, in uh, Greenville and they needed to find an ARP church nearby. We could talk about transferring and so forth. It also talks about the responsibilities of members, and this is really important. It's a shepherding tool uh, to be able to talk about the peace and prosperity and purity of the church, which is the responsibility of each member. And so as you come to someone's home, uh, whether it just be for informal shepherding care, or whether you're counseling somebody who's struggling with sin, or whether you're exercising church discipline, You want to be able to approach that person based on their membership vows and responsibilities that are outlined in the form of government. Uh, Chapter 5 is about the deacon and the diaconate. This was covered several weeks ago. Uh, Chapter 6 is about the elder in the session. This is what Eric talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Chapter 7 is about the act of ordination. So the act of ordination. um, Let me get to my chapter 7 here. The one thing I will say about our form of government is that it, it's, it's not hyperlinked, so you can't click on the table of contents and go right to chapter 7. Uh, so the act of ordination is uh, the, the component of the ARP's governing uh, standards where members are publicly consecrated to specific church offices to which they have been called by God and elected or appointed by the congregation. And so this goes back to the Witherow uh, point five about the the uh, officers are, are are ordained by the, a gathered uh, collective group of presbyters, and in this case, this is from everything from a minister to an elder to a deacon being ordained and installed within a church for service. And so that's a that will be an important chapter for those of you who become officers in the church. Uh, Chapter eight: the election, ordination, and installation of the elders and deacons. Again, this is especially important for you to know. Uh, Neil will talk about this in greater detail, I believe, in week thirteen when he talks about growing the leadership of the church. Uh, but this chapter, um, and Eric can attest to this, this chapter has a lot of points that are—they're not vague, but they require the wisdom of the session in their interpretation and application in the calling of and installing and ordaining men to office. Uh, Chapter 9 is about the minister, his responsibilities and calling. Um, If you were, for example, a seminary student and wanted to be received as a student under care or a licentiate within our presbytery to be given authority to preach at churches, that would be found under chapter 9, the minister and his responsibilities. And then we have the presbytery, her roles and responsibilities, the mission of the church, the general sitt-in, committees, commissions, and boards, and regulation governing amendments. So that's the, the page turner there in chapter 14. Uh, how do we make amendments to our governing documents? Um, as a Christmas present for those of you who come on the session, I'll buy you a copy of Robert's Rules of Orders. Uh, and what's that? Along with, Along with Christmas socks. We'll get the socks. I'll get the Robert's Rules. So uh, our form of government, it it is a lengthy document. It's not light reading. It's not like, you know, it's not like grabbing the the latest novel and reading through it. It's not even like grabbing a history book. It's like grabbing like a Haynes manual. And maybe for some of you, that sounds fantastic. Jacob's probably like, I love that. I mean, tell me what what the, how much torque I need on that bolt to put it back on or whatever. Uh, But for the majority of people, the form of government is not your Friday evening, you know, reading choice. But it's important to go through um, because these are the documents that have held our denomination together over the years, uh, over the decades and centuries. Uh, The latest form of government was uh, adopted in 2014, I think, was the most recent uh, adoption as it's been amended and, and addressed over time. And so it's important for you guys to know this, even just as members of the church, because the form of government tells you as members of the church what your responsibilities are and it informs you what our responsibilities are as elders and, and ministers and deacons as well. And so it's important for you to know these things, and I do encourage you to take time reading it. Uh, the last couple of elements of our governing documents include a book of discipline. It's a 28-page document. details the principles, definitions, and procedures for dealing with offenses. I'm leaving that to Neil. He's dealing with church discipline less, uh, next week. I will say that it does have two components that are important to note. Number one, it gives instructions for appeals for one under discipline. So, uh, you know, church discipline is often perceived as this sort of um, uh, abusive, authoritarian kind of cracking down on people that we don't like or it's, un- it's burdensome or it's unfair uh, but our book of discipline actually has a process for appeal. So if, if David were under discipline and he felt unfairly, there's a process by which he can go uh, to the session and then to the presbytery and so forth, and even to the synod to say, I don't believe this is a just uh, execution of discipline and, and to protect him. There's a similar process in the military where you can appeal to the next highest commander above the one who's disciplining you. And so you can request somebody to review your case uh, as an unbiased observer to make sure that you're not being mistreated. So that's a a wonderful protection for members of the church. And then finally, uh, the Book of Discipline lays out what the goal of church discipline is, which is what? Restoration. Restoration. Absolutely. The fact that that's articulated in our Book of Discipline is worth noting. It doesn't just say, here's how you discipline someone in sin. It encourages us as, as a session and as a church to think about the fact that the goal of this discipline, which is outlined in detail, is to see a person restored. And we don't want to miss that part. Uh, there's a directory for private and family worship. It's four pages long, <clears throat> super short. And it gives us the three elements of faithful family worship, which are prayer, scripture, and singing. Now, I'm going to say that one more time. Most of you are like, prayer, yep, yep, family worship with prayer. Scripture, got it, we always read Scripture. Singing, Uh, the tents of the righteous will overflow with praise, the Psalms say. And so our denomination has taken the position in writing in our directory for public private and family worship to say that faithful family worship includes the reading of Scripture, the praying of the people, and the singing of God's praises. And so just as a a kind of an encouragement to you men as you lead your own families to ensure that you do so. Um, Lastly, then, our directory of public worship. And I, I missed a couple weeks, obviously, being on vacation. Did we have a class on worship? You did a class on worship, right? So I imagine that Eric covered the bulk of this, the the elements of public worship, what they look like, the call to worship, prayer, reading, preaching, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, tithes and offerings, confessions of faith, and the sacraments. It details how those things are done and what those elements look like. And then it also gives, excuse me, the second part is components of special services. So within uh, an ordinary worship service, we may have oaths and vows. Uh, uh, Our denomination recognizes that we can have special occasions, such as Christian marriage or funerals and memorial services, ordinations and installations. Those are special services and commissionings, like if we were going to send somebody out to be a missionary or a church planter. And so all of these things are detailed for us in our governing documents, the six of them being the standards, the manual of authorities and duties, The form of government. I should put these backwards. It's once you read The Fog, you get mad. So it's form of government, then manual of authorities and duties. And then you have the Book of Discipline, Directory of Public Worship, and the uh, Private and Family Worship. So thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. I know you caught that. I saw you smiling. Um, Not the most uh, riveting information, but very important to the good order and discipline of Christ Covenant Church, as well as to Grace Presbytery, as well as to the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Um, I'll, I'll open it up for questions, because we do have time, but I'll open it up for questions and any comments from Eric, if you want to make any comments at the end. Um, let this, at the very least, be an encouragement to you to pray for those men who are tasked with knowing this information and applying it faithfully in the leading of the church. Um, at the very least, at the end of this hour, you should be thinking to yourself, that's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of regulation, so much stuff I just breezed through as fast as I could just to touch on it and make mention of the fact that it exists. And it really is incumbent upon us as, as men on the session, as deacons, as ministers, to know this information and be able to apply it well from everything from somebody in the church is caught in an adulterous relationship. How do we pastorally apply church discipline to we've got a new class of elders and deacons. How do we elect them faithfully and properly into office to synod is wrestling with an issue about such and such. How do we prayerfully and uh, procedurally approach that at synod next year and so forth. There's so much work that goes into uh, leading the church well, and our denomination does a good job, both historically and presently in our governing standards, uh, to help us do that, but it's, this is the tool, you got to pick it up and know how to use it, you can't just use the screwdriver to hit the nail on the head, right, I suppose you can, but you shouldn't, and so we need to know how to use these documents, uh, so I encourage you to pray for those men, not just here at Christ's Covenant, but across our denomination, who are tasked with oversight of our churches. Eric, any comments?
2: Um, yeah, just a couple. I would normally in the years past we um uh, we 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 bought these black binders that have all the standards and handed them out and I was just like why haven't we done this in our computer that's what I was doing. on my phone so why can't we order these anymore? They're not available for order in that package like they were. Uh what they are is there is PDFs online.
0: Um which I'll send everybody the link.
2: No we In the book of discipline, I would very much recommend that you read it before next week, the whole thing. It is, uh, you know, the fog is (laughs) foggy.
0: Yeah, I'm going to send all this stuff to you guys by PDF. Yeah, I have to download another copy of The Fog because mine's like highlighted and written all over, but I'll get you guys this stuff on Monday.
1: Thank
0: you. Oh, thanks, Ben. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Yeah, again, you know, nobody's nobody's going to the local bookstore to buy all these things. This is, uh, like Eric said, your eyes can kind of gloss over, and I get it. Um, it's not particularly riveting, but... But frankly, without this sort of stuff, without these governing documents, um, our church, our churches could descend into chaos. uh, Because then it does become the whim of a particular group of men. Uh, You develop what's pejoratively referred to as the good old boys network, uh, whether in a local church or in a presbytery, and those things take over. And all of a sudden, congregants find themselves both unaware that it's not supposed to be that way or unable to do anything about it. And so these governing documents, they they serve as an umbrella for the congregation and for the session. They serve as a net for the, umbre- uh, for the congregation and the session as well as we lead and are led uh, in local churches and in the denomination. Um, I would also, obviously, the fact that Things have been done this way for a long time isn't really proof positive. But our denomination is 240 years old, Um, and it's by God's grace and by the processes that have been put in place, the biblical application of principles of church government and polity, it has maintained fidelity for all those years. Uh, That says something. It says something that the ARP didn't break off of. a. uh, Now, I don't mean to say that the PCA is less of a godly denomination or church because they did break off. But the fact that we haven't had that happening throughout our history is relevant. It says something. Uh, There's a joke. uh, Kyle Sims is the what is Kyle, the clerk of the of the denomination. Um, He's like. 7-5 7-5 or something like that. You'll see him if you ever go to, ever go to synod. And uh, he tells this joke. He says, you know, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? And it's, uh, well, a whole congregation, because that's how we do things in the Baptist world, right? And then how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is seven, because that's the perfect number for a committee. And then the question is, how many ARPs does it take to change the light bulb? And the answer is, change a light bulb. That light bulb were for my great-granddaddy. Why would you think about changing it at all? <laughs> Uh, and there's some, there's some truth to that, but there's also some value to it, right? Because if you're trying to replace the light bulb with a, 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 you know, a, um, a canary that's bright yellow, it's not going to do the same thing, is it? You might think it would because it's got some similar color, but that's not going to function the way it's supposed to. And so we've got light uh, for the path and our governing standards, and I want to encourage you guys to know them and to believe them and to love them Because they will benefit you and your church, this church, uh, going forward.
2: Tactical orders.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. Go build a house without first drawing it out, engineering trusses, designing fitters, all that kind of stuff, and then do it.
0: Yeah. Last last call for questions. I want to let you guys go. Yeah, Ben.
1: I just wanted to make a comment that there may be some here that would read the qualification for the session for, for an elder or a deacon and say, there's no way. Yeah. But just to piggyback on what you said, just pray about it this week. And there, uh, you know, the church needs more godly men in the eldership and deacons. Hmm. Uh, but we also here at Christ Covenant have been blessed with having a lot of good. Uh, uh, what's the term that they're not? officers, for they handle certain ministries. Ministry leaders, ministry yeah. Leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we need we need a lot of good ministry leaders. Maybe not the time might not be right, you know, just now. But it's uh, it, it's humbling to to think about. Gosh, I don't know if I even qualify for that. But it, it also gives you a chance to you know look at your heart, see what your calling might be, talk to other people that do, that you uh, <clears throat> value their, opinion and have a good relationship with over the next week
0: or so. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, please do get get back to me or Eric or Neil in the next next few days, next week uh, on this question of uh, feeling called to one of the offices, and we'll have those conversations uh, with you. Again, if you do feel uh, overwhelmed by the qualifications, the biblical qualifications, the eligibility, um, that's a good thing. If you, you know, I rode a Harley for years and years, and we used to say, the day you you stop being afraid of it is the day you're going to put it on the ground. And so you don't want to approach this lightly, right? Don't approach it lightly if you're just thinking, yeah, of course I should be an elder. I would caution you to slow down a little bit and ask yourself if that's the right attitude to have. But if you feel called and are uh, appropriately fearful of that calling let us help go through that process because there's a certification process that we go to where we sit down with a man and ask questions and encourage and, and pray and, and, and evaluate. And then there's the testing, the examination that occurs where we say, you know, you may your character is exemplary, and, but there are some other areas we want you to shore up before you're ready for this and so forth and trust that process. And like Ben said, there are a multitude of ways to serve in the church here. And then I'd send you Chris's way uh, to ask about those. Uh, so be prayerful this next week. Reach out to me or Eric or Neil. Uh, sorry for keeping you guys late. I, I joked that everybody else had, and now I've done the same. So. Um, but I started 10 minutes late, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Would you prepare our hearts now for worship? Uh, Lord, help us to worship you decently and in good order uh, according to your design for worship. We don't want to come to you um, with our um, uh, products that we've imagined in our mind or processes that just please our flesh, but rather according to your word. So help us now, Lord, to put aside distractions put aside the weight of the topic we've just discussed, and focus our attention fully on Christ, that we would see Him, that we would hear Him, that we would sing to Him, pray to Him, and love Him in this coming hour. We pray this in His name. Amen.